My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and 50 Objects podcast. Welcome back to another episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and 50 Objects podcast. Before we start, how about a quick update on the podcast? When I started this, I was thinking it would just be a fun, small project that I could share with some friends. I assumed they would only listen because if they didn't, they wouldn't be able to tolerate my guilt trips. But the show has done really well. It's modest among the most famous history podcasts, but fun for me. It now has subscribers in over 30 countries and every continent. I've received nothing but the best feedback, and so before I kick off this episode... I just wanted to say thank you. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Now, to the show. If you are a fan of history, do you have a favorite decade and time that you'd like to visit? I know my wife would love to see Versailles at its height, in all its glory, before the peasants killed most of the people living there. I'm sure that part would be edited out. For me, this episode has entered into one of my favorite decades in U.S. history. The decade of the 1880s had it all. If you wanted to stay in the city and make your fortune, you could do that. If you love the Wild West like I do, most Western movies are based on this period. Just to give you an idea, it was in October of 1881 in Tombstone, Arizona. Arizona still being a U.S. territory that gun rights, much like today, were an issue. The town sheriff didn't want people openly carrying in his town. And when one of the oldest gangs in U.S. history ignored his warnings, Sheriff Wyatt Earp his brother Virgil, and Doc Holliday decided to take the guns from them. The fight that ensued at the OK Corral lasted at the most 30 seconds and saw three people killed, but it would go down in history as one of the most famous Western gunfights of all time. The next year, in 1882, a famous bank robber would be shot in the back by one of his recent recruits to the gang. Jesse James would be killed by Robert Ford, to claim the $5,000 reward on his head. And in 1886, Geronimo and his band of Apache warriors would finally surrender in Arizona, thus ending hostilities between the U.S. government and the Indians in the southern states. Like I said, in terms of Westerns, the 1800s had it all. Now, in terms of engineering feats, in January of 1880, the French would break ground on the Panama Canal. This project would prove too much for them, and it would eventually be purchased by Teddy Roosevelt years later. In 1883, the Brooklyn Bridge would be finished. Meant to help relieve the flow of traffic, it actually was the cause of over a dozen deaths in its first week when people screamed that they thought it was going to collapse, causing a number of stampedes. Of course, it didn't collapse. And it was 1885 when the finalized parts of the Statue of Liberty arrived in New York Harbor for construction. Two years later, in 1887, a big thing happened. Hawaii had made peace with the United States. As part of their willingness to aid the U.S. cause, Hawaii would lease out Pearl Harbor to the Navy for its use and construction would begin. But of all the amazing things that happened, maybe the most applicable to all of you took place in Georgia in 1886. There, a pharmacist, playing with different flavors in his kitchen, invented a drink he'd immediately begin to market. Most people thought it tasted strange, but Coca-Cola has been flying off the shelves ever since. 
The ingredients have been updated a bit, however, for when it was invented in 1886, the two primary uh, ingredients in Coca-Cola were caffeine and cocaine. No wonder people were thrilled with it. But for our purposes, one major event would take place that would begin the swinging of the pendulum until it affected the members of the church. In July of 1881, the 20th President of the United States, James Garfield, would enter the Baltimore train station. There he'd be shot by a disgruntled office seeker. Now the wound wasn't fatal, but after being attended to by doctors, it became infected and he died a short time later. Experts now believe that the infection was due to the doctors attending him with unclean hands or unprotected hands. But anyway, Garfield's replacement, Chester Arthur, did what many believe was a very poor job. Hence, when the next presidential election took place in 1884, the first Democrat since before the Civil War won the office. Grover Cleveland would win in a landslide. This would directly affect the church, because Grover Cleveland would allow the passage of the Edmunds-Tucker Act. This act, which passed in March of 1887, was created to bring down the polygamy in the church. The act officially disincorporated the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Perpetual Immigration Fund, as it believed that both the church and the fund encouraged polygamy. It allowed the federal government to seize all of the church's assets and property, which must have stung terribly, and this act required an anti-polygamy oath for prospective voters, jurors, and public officials. And most importantly, it issued arrest warrants for all the practicing polygamists in Utah. These arresting crosshairs would fall directly on the president of the church and its leaders. So, how could the church get out of this mess? Today's object is the 1890 Manifesto. So, what is the 1890 Manifesto and how did it come about? In the last episode, we discussed the 1880 Fall Conference in Salt Lake City where John Taylor was sustained as the third prophet of the church. It was now five years later, and he was fully entrenched in the work. Now a story. In February of 1885, the church was having another conference at the Tabernacle. As is the custom of the church, President Taylor was to give the final talk to the members. As he rose to the stand, he began to preach to the members about standing firm in turbulent times. Now, if you were an observant member, you'd have noticed that the doors to the Tabernacle suddenly filled with unfriendly faces. Federal lawmen were in Salt Lake City, and they were there to arrest John Taylor. President Taylor obviously saw them, but unperturbed, he continued his address speaking to the members for almost two straight hours. John Taylor knew why they were here. In 1882, the Edmonds Act had been passed, making polygamy illegal. Anyone caught in a polygamous relationship would be imprisoned for five years and receive a $500 fine. But despite this law, John Taylor and the church stood by polygamy. The federal sheriffs were there to make an example out of the Mormon prophet and arrest President John Taylor in front of the crowd. Can you imagine how suspenseful that must have been? When his talk ended, the members stood up in the aisles to leave and the sheriffs were blocked. John Taylor calmly walked to the back, down the stairs to the basement, and to his bodyguards. He was thus swept out of the tabernacle through a back door and into the hills. He and the members didn't know it, but this would be the last public appearance the prophet would ever make in his life. President John Taylor had gone into hiding. Over the next two and a half years, 
Though President Taylor wouldn't go out in public, he still managed the church affairs through correspondence. He would write up his talks and have them delivered through other leaders. The church stopped meeting in the tabernacle as federal sheriffs were seen to arrest anyone suspected of polygamy at these gatherings. During these years, over 1,200 members, men and women, would be incarcerated for practicing polygamy. When the government ruled that you couldn't vote unless you took an anti-polygamy oath, members were known to take the oath, vote, and just continue practicing polygamy anyway. None of this seemed to affect John Taylor, who just became more defiant. When the 4th of July rolled around in 1886, John Taylor would move that all flags in Utah be lowered to half-mast in defiance of these laws. Now, this really angered the federal officials. The search for John Taylor became more pressing. They offered an $800 reward for information that led to his capture. And in February of 1887, they raided the temples, the tithing offices, the Gardo house, and the Lion house for clues as to where he was hiding, but they couldn't find the Mormon prophet. All of the searching was for naught, though, because John Taylor had become deathly sick. On July 29th of 1887, George Q. Cannon and Joseph F. Smith, John Taylor's counselors, announced that the third prophet of the church had died. The cause of his death was said to be heart failure, but Charles W. Penrose, who spent a good deal of time with the prophet, insisted that exile was the leading factor in his declining health and subsequent death. As with Brigham's passing, the role of prophet now fell back to the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. This was Wilford Woodruff. Woodruff was also in hiding when John Taylor died. Wilford Woodruff was near St. George, Utah, and upon hearing about John Taylor's pending death, he hopped into a carriage to speed to Salt Lake City to see if he could meet with the dying prophet. Woodruff would learn of John Taylor's death en route. He would record this in his journal, quote, Thus, another president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has passed away. President John Taylor is twice a martyr. At the death of the prophet Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith in Carthage jail, he was shot with four balls and mingled his blood with the martyred prophet. This was in 1844. Now in 1887, he is driven into exile by the United States officers for his religion until through his confinement and suffering, he lays down his life and suffers death. President John Taylor died today at five minutes to eight o'clock, which lays the responsibility and the care of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints upon my shoulders. This places me in a very peculiar situation, but in the providence of God, it is laid upon me, End quote. A peculiar situation indeed. Wilford Woodruff would make it to Salt Lake City in time for the funeral of John Taylor. However, he wouldn't attend it for fear of being arrested. Immediately after the services, he met with the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and he began to lead. Now, this was tricky. Woodruff was tasked with winning the hearts of the members during this difficult time and figuring out the polygamy problem. Like we mentioned in the opener, at this point, Grover Cleveland was now in office as the President of the United States, and the Edmonds Act wasn't doing enough to get the Utahns in line. So he then authorized the next step in this process, and that was the Edmonds-Tucker Act. This officially disincorporated the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Perpetual Emigration Fund. It required an anti-polygamy oath for all prospective voters, jurors, and public officials. It annulled Utah territorial laws and required civil licenses in all marriages. This was the only way the government could recognize a valid marriage going forward. The act abrogated the common law spousal privilege, 
thus requiring wives of polygamous members to testify against their husbands in court. And lastly, they repossessed all church assets over $50,000 in value. These they owned and rented back to the church. Everything but the temples. The church leadership were told that these wouldn't be touched. So this is the mess that Wilford Woodruff inherited as the new prophet of the church. Although arrests and imprisonments caused families to suffer, the greatest problem facing President Woodruff and the church was its inability to acquire and hold the funds necessary to build more temples, do missionary work, publish materials like the Book of Mormon, and provide for the welfare of the members. Now, we should note that church leaders succeeded in appealing this act and getting their case up before the United States Supreme Court, arguing that the confiscation of church property under the Edmunds-Tucker Act was unconstitutional. But despite their efforts, in May of 1890, the court upheld, in a 5-4 to four decision, the constitutionality of all that the government had done under the Edmunds-Tucker Law. Though disappointed by the decision, there was little the members could do to ward off the impending economic destruction of the church. But wait, it gets worse. In the fall of 1890, a couple more rumors reached Wilford Woodruff. First off, not only were the polygamous members stripped of their rights to vote, but there was a proposed federal bill that was gaining steam that insisted that all members of the church be stripped of their civic rights. Meaning, if you were a member of the church, polygamous or not, you couldn't vote. Also, Eastern church leaders informed Wilford Woodruff that the feds were now going to repossess all of the temples. I can't emphasize enough how much pressure and strain was placed on the church leadership at this point, and especially on the new prophet Wilford Woodruff. All of this over polygamy. President Woodruff tried lobbying political allies for support, but when that failed, after a lot of introspection, he wrote in his journal in September of 1890 that, after so much anguish, prayer, and discussion with his counselors, he was prepared to act for the temporal salvation of the church. We've now arrived at our object. With the fate of the church squarely on his shoulders, the story goes that on September 24th of 1890, President Woodruff entered his offices in Salt Lake City and told those in attendance that he had not slept much the night before. He said that he had been struggling all night with the Lord about what should be done to under the existing circumstances of the church. And, he said, laying some papers upon the table, here is the result. That morning, what was transcribed has come to be known as the Manifesto. So what is the Manifesto? According to the official church declaration on this revelation, President Woodruff said that the Lord had shown him by revelation exactly what would take place if plural marriage did not cease. He was shown that the church would suffer the confiscation and lose all of the temples, and thus stopping all the ordinances therein, both for the living and the dead. They would suffer the imprisonment of the First Presidency and the Twelve and the heads of families in the church, and the confiscation of personal property of all the people, all of which themselves would stop this practice. So by law, they would lose it all. Or they could finally cease the practice and submit to the law, and through doing so, leave the prophets, apostles, and fathers at home so that they can instruct the people and attend to the duties of the church, and thus leave the temples in the hands of the members so that they can attend to the ordinances of the gospel for the living and the dead. This manifesto was to begin the process of ending polygamy for good in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
Now, this is great. The next day, the church had the manifesto run in all the national newspapers. It even appeared in the Washington Post. But here's the great part. The federal government told President Woodruff that they would not recognize the official declaration unless it was formally accepted by the church's general conference. The government wanted common consent. So on October 4th of 1890, at the church's general conference, the manifesto was read from the pulpit. Lorenzo Snow then proposed that since the members recognized the authority of Wilfred Woodruff as the third prophet of the church and the one with all the keys to lead, that they support it. The manifesto was accepted unanimously by a vote of common consent. Now, we should note that this wasn't just a cold turkey ending of polygamy for a couple of reasons. First off, the manifesto said that the church would cease to marry anyone into polygamous relationships, but it didn't say anything about those currently in a polygamous relationship. Also, it outlawed polygamy in the United States where it was illegal. It didn't refer to polygamous marriages in Mexico or Canada where that was still legal. Records show that polygamous marriages continued to take place in those countries through the end of the 18th century. However, by 1904, the church wanted this stopped entirely. So a second manifesto was issued wherein the members were told that anyone participating in polygamy going forward would be punished by excommunication from the church. Two apostles at the time of the second manifesto, they refused to submit to the new directive and they were dropped from the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Now, what happened to the 1890 Manifesto? In 1908, the church officially canonized the Revelation and began to publish it as part of the Doctrine and Covenants as Official Declaration 1. It has been part of the Doctrine and Covenants since that time. Now, what effect did the Manifesto have on the church? Well, a few minor groups of members didn't support the Manifesto as they stood by the practice of polygamy and where it stood in their minds in Mormon theology. These were eventually excommunicated from the church. We should note that many stayed within their groups. They considered themselves members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and some of them still exist today. When Warren Jeffs, for example, popped up on the FBI's most wanted list in 2006 for rape, many newspapers ran articles citing his membership as a leader in the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This was one of the splinter groups that left after the manifesto. They have been disavowed by the church, but they still consider themselves practicing members, living the laws taught by Brigham Young. Many news sources in 2006, when he was arrested for marrying underage girls, failed to mention that he wasn't a member of the current Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This caused quite a bit of confusion for people who don't understand the relationship, or lack thereof, to the official church that he wasn't actually a part of. Now, the rest of the members who officially accepted the manifesto to end polygamy had their civic rights restored. The church was reissued to its legal status, and the leadership was able to come out of hiding, and their assets were finally restored to them. With the church now in good standing with the federal government, the process began to petition for statehood. After some back-and-forth negotiations, it was finally allowed, and Utah became the 45th member of the United States of America on January 4th of 1896. On a spiritual side for the church members, with federal officials now out of the way in Salt Lake, they could focus all their efforts on what they felt was their crowning achievement in Salt Lake City, the completion of the Salt Lake Temple. Now, the cornerstone of the temple was laid by Brigham Young in 1853. However, with the Utah War, the Civil War, 
and everything else that had taken place, the church wouldn't feel they could really put their efforts behind completing the structure until the 1880s. And by 1892, construction was almost complete and President Wilford Woodruff would lead a ceremony where the capstone was finally laid. Over 50,000 people gathered in downtown Salt Lake City at Temple Square, the largest recorded gathering on record to that point, to celebrate with song and participate in the Hosanna Shout, an object we discussed in episode 18. The grandeur of the temple generated a ton of national interest. As part of President Woodruff's push to befriend the federal government, more than a thousand federal officials and prominent businessmen were invited to Salt Lake City to take a tour of the building. And when the dedication services were finally completed on April 6th of 1893, it was recorded that over 75,000 people had showed up to see the magnificent building. Contemplating all that they had accomplished, President Wilford Woodruff would record in his journal from that time, the power of Satan would be broken and his power over the members diminished and there would be increased interest in the gospel message. He was right. Over the next few years, the church would open 11 missions in the U.S. and the Pacific Islands. Nearly three times as many missionaries were called to preach the gospel across the globe, and the church continued to build new colonies in western Wyoming, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and Alberta, Canada. Now, where can you see the manifesto? The original document produced by Wilfred Woodruff remained in the church, and you can see it at the Church History Library in Salt Lake City. They have digital copies that you can see on their website. Also, like I mentioned, it's now titled Official Declaration 1, and it's printed in the Doctrine and Covenants. In 2010, a popular TV series kicked off on the channel TLC that has become instantly famous. It was called Sister Wives, and in it, producers followed a family living in Lehigh, Utah that were members of the Apostolic United Brethren. The founders of this religion considered themselves a splinter group of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, though the Mormons claim absolutely no attachment to them. The show follows a man and his four wives and children as they try to knock down stereotypes around polygamy and show America that they are just regular people. The problem here is after everything that took place in the 1800s, Utah has some very strict anti-polygamy laws. Before the show even aired, directors contacted Utah's attorney general to determine what would happen when this polygamous couple went public with their story. They were told that Utah didn't have the resources to chase down every polygamous couple unless child abuse was taking place. However, the day after the first episode aired, Lehigh police announced that they were investigating the family for breaking the laws of bigamy. This was a third-degree felony in Utah, and it carried a possible prison sentence of 20 years. So when police finalized their investigation, they turned it over to Utah County prosecutors for review. What transpired was the court case Brown v. Bumman, where this polygamous couple was looking to strike down Utah's anti-polygamy laws. Over the next five years, a long legal battle ensued. In the end, a federal judge would determine on December 13th of 2011 that although Utah was justified in not allowing multiple marriage licenses in polygamy, they could no longer prosecute any couples that they considered unlawfully cohabitating in a polygamous relationship. I guess that all it took to get America to open up to polygamy was a TV series. What was the church's response to that ruling? Just days after the judge struck down Utah's laws, the church published an official essay about its history with plural marriage. In the essay, they state that the view of the church is that marriage of one man and one woman is God's standard, 
except in specific periods. In 1890, the Lord inspired Church President Wilford Woodruff to issue a statement that led to the end of the practice of plural marriage in the church. Today, any person who practices plural marriage cannot become or remain a member of the church. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 50 Objects. As always, if you have questions or comments, you can reach out to me directly at joehomc at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing or leaving a comment on iTunes. It helps share the word. Thanks again for listening.